right, dear listeners, welcome back to another episode of Vernacular Podcast. Sally and I are really excited about this because it's been now two of our previous, or the, both of the last two episodes were just me or just Sally. And so Sally and I are really excited to be sitting across the table from one another, talking into microphones, and doubly excited because we have joining us from his uh, room in Princeton, New Jersey, where he is the brand new, one of two managing directors with his wife, Lee Labresco, of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Life. That's again at Princeton University. So Alexi Sargent's joining us on the Skype line. He's working with Catholic students there. He's also a freelance writer, and we are having him on this podcast to talk about one of his recent, well, it's, we're not talking about his article, but he wrote an article about this, and we thought he'd be a great person to have onto our show to talk to us more about it. And that is The Good Place, the NBC sitcom that is in Alexi's words, unexpectedly profound. But before we dive into all of that, Alexi, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. I know it's been a couple of years since we had you last on, but it's it's been too long, I'll say that. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely, and congratulations on moving to Princeton and best wishes as you get started in your new role there at the Aquinas Institute. That's pretty exciting. It is, thank you so much. Well, Alexi, I sort of I, I sort of gave away the game there in the introduction, but we really wanted to have you on to talk about The Good Place. This has been a sitcom that we have really enjoyed. And since we don't have cable, <laughs> we are a full episode behind. Full what, season behind. I'm sorry, full season behind. Yeah, what, what those who do have cable and have been following the show uh, are able to watch. But so, up to date with your article, which is good. We've seen the first two seasons. Exactly. We we are eagerly awaiting the arrival on Netflix of season three. And we've, we've believe it or not, we've coordinated with Netflix on this. So <laughs> the day this episode arrives in people's podcast feeds is the very day that season three is going to be populating on Netflix. I'm so excited. Yeah. Re- oh, hurrah. There yeah. You go. <laughs> Netflix called us up and said, when, when are you guys releasing your episode? We'll sync it up. <laughs> Well, that um, was really nice of that. Yeah, I, I thought Very so kind. too. I thought so too. So, but let's start with this, Alexi. Uh, in a recent article that you wrote about The Good Place, you called this show unexpectedly profound. And I believe you went even further than that and said it was unexpectedly or the most unexpectedly profound show on television. So can you talk to us a little bit about why you characterize it that way? Yeah, absolutely. So The Good Place tells the story of... Eleanor Shellstrop, a very selfish woman played by Kristen Bell, who's uh, in the first season discovers that she's been accidentally let into heaven as a mistake. You know, she doesn't belong here and she's trying to fit in. Uh, And then the show goes on to just really earnestly delve into what makes a moral life, right? And how to become a good person. Uh, As Eleanor, the character decides she needs to, you know, learn to really be good in order to actually, you know, kind of keep up her con of uh, living in heaven. And kind of the show ends up being a lot about her moral development. And this was unexpected for me. And then further unexpected was um, as a Catholic watching the show made largely by, you know, secular artists uh, come to some interesting conclusions. Uh, I would characterize some of the arc of the show as something like if purgatory didn't exist, it would be necessary to invent it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do want to just jump in here real quick, Alexi. And for our listeners sake, if you haven't listened to this show or watched this show and you really hate spoilers, you might want to stop listening here because one of the brilliant things about this show that I think, Alexi, you're going to talk about shortly is a major plot development that happens at the end of the first season. And it's it's on that that plot development that I think the entire ingenuity of the show hinges. And so if you don't want to hear about that spoiler, move on. 
if you're okay with spoilers, I mean, it, it is a sitcom after all. And, and I think- And we're a season behind. Yeah, I think that you should go ahead and listen to this. But we need to talk about the big plot twist at the end because I think that feeds into what you're talking about just now, Alexi. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, should I go ahead and say it now yeah, that you've warned let's everyone just, of spoilers? Yeah, let's just spoil away. Yeah, so the, the brilliant twist at the end of the first season of the show is that it's not the good place at all. Uh, the kind of supernatural character played by Ted Danson uh, named Michael- uh, who's this sort of heavenly architect, turns out to be not so heavenly at all. Uh, he is an agent of the bad place, and he has created this fake good place as a complicated way to torture mortals. So the main characters of the show, Kristen Bell's character and you know her three uh, closest friends, are actually all people who did not make their way into the good place, and they've been you know allowed into a facsimile of the good place as a way of... Um, a way of, you know, getting a, uh, a Jean-Paul Sartre no exit sprung on them. Right, right? yeah. They're, they're, they're kind of intended to torture each other, you know, through their their ruses and machinations and their, you know, uh, their moral failings were meant to be a sort of subtle torture implement against each other. Yeah, I love that. And I think you made this point in your article. And in fact, a phrase that you used in that stood out to me, and that was hallmark piety. But the whole right. first season of the show is constructed around this hallmark piety that you call attention to that we have this idea that the good place is going to be uh and, and i you know literally in the show unlimited frozen yogurt right like beautifully <laughs> manicured lawns you each have this perfect house that's custom designed for you and, and your soulmate and you're with your soulmate and you don't have to uh you don't have to endure the unwanted intrusions of neighbors if you don't want to and all of this yeah and <laughs> it's it i mean you're you're getting at it exactly it's a very kind of shallow idea of what heaven could be right you know like heaven as this sort of bougie paradise uh, right. of manicured lawns frozen yogurt stores uh and like you know kind of a very limited sense of community too right where the community is that type of you know at arm's length community you have in these like you know planned uh, neighborhoods and um you know you have you have the one soulmate that's supposed to fulfill you for eternity exactly uh, and you know as a Catholic, I know that that's in fact not how uh, heaven has been, um, you know, understood. Right in uh, in kind of classical terms, we uh, think of heaven as about you know a union with the divine. Right, right heaven right. is you know, theosis uh, or divinization. Yeah, yeah, and in the experience of um, the 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 vision of God, right, and and so a kind of a heaven that's really like you get to do your own thing in a fancy suburban <laughs> totally. house uh, is has a there's a certain you know, kind of paper thin quality to it, which I think, you know, makes the twist really fitting at the end of the first season that this can't really be what, what goodness is. Yeah. And I think it's especially fitting because you watch these characters first arrive at the quote, good place or what they think is the good place. And they're very, very happy for, I don't know, 24 hours before they start, <laughs> before they start realizing that they're actually miserable. And then they start sort of questioning themselves. Am I supposed to be this miserable in the good place? I thought this was heaven. And then I think the, the obvious follow on from that is, is this really all there is? Because this is horrible. Is this what I was such a good person on earth for? Because this was definitely not worth it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the show's premise is, you know, poking holes in, you know, popular conceptions or misconceptions of what heaven could be. Uh, and the other kind of major thread of the show is just 
questions of morality, right? You know, what, what then is goodness? How do you be a good person? Because the protagonist, Eleanor, starts out as a very bad person. It's just kind of comically over the top in her selfishness and uh, foolhardy disregard for her own and others' well-being. And we get flashbacks to her life on Earth that really uh, hammer this home. Uh, but once she's trying to you know, to fit in in the good place and then eventually like genuinely trying to become better. Uh, she starts receiving ethics lessons from her supposed soulmate, uh, Chidi, played uh, by the charming William Jackson Harper, uh, who is a ethics professor uh, paired up with Eleanor, who starts trying to kind of walk her through just the, the literature on ethics and morality. And so the show has like jokes about Kierkegaard, which you didn't necessarily expect from an NBC sitcom, Not but you're great. <laughs> Yeah, I love T.D. He is this great blend of the classic kind of philosophy professor and at the same time a, a friend. And he's he gradually becomes a friend to Eleanor and really wants her to become better and to become good. He's not just kind of lecturing her as this show goes on. Um, but speaking of T.D., there's this great episode where the focus is the trolley problem, which is a classic kind of philosophy question. And um, T.D. is the focus of that. Um, is that, what is that, season two, right, with? I think it's two, yeah. He's, yeah, yeah. He's now added to his class. It's from season two. In fact, I think it's it's specifically um, uh, a, an episode that won awards um, from. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. From uh, I uh, let's uh, I'll look this up, but I think it was a um, award for kind of short form science fiction storytelling. Well, that's uh, a and, funny episode. Yeah, so, I mean, because it's not just philosophy that we're getting there, but we're getting this kind of I don't know. It's it's kind of like a a a joke on like horror, I guess. Oh yeah. Cause the, and, the graphic violence. Yeah. Yeah. The... Because every time that Michael thinks of a different version of the trolley problem, Chidi is the one who is experiencing it. And so he gets all this like fake blood on him and everything. But, but what do you think the show's creators are trying to say with that um, explanation of the trolley problem and all of its different options? Here we go. I found it. Uh, the episode won a Hugo award. Uh, wow. So yeah. So the, um, the trolley problem uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, I'll summarize what the problem itself is. Uh, it's a supposedly illuminating question in ethics. You know, do, do you see a runaway trolley? Uh, you can see that there's, you know, people on the track that will be hit. There's a switch you can pull to direct it to a different track where uh, one person will be hit instead of, say, five. The question is, you know, uh, do you pull? Do you pull the lever? Are you culpable for the death of that one person? Is this the sort of thing where you can just run the numbers and figure out, you know, which is the ethical option? Or does your kind of choice consigning one person to death make it a different death than the deaths of the others who were dying due to the trolley running out of control? And people run all sorts of variations on it where you, you know, you yourself can throw yourself in front of the trolley or you can, uh, you know, some you know, people in, on one track or not on another track. Uh, and the idea is that somehow this will like illustrate something about morality. Uh, uh, but I think it's, I think it's problematic as a problem, even, you know, from, from my perspective, this doesn't really get to the heart of what the ethical life is because it's a weird edge case uh, built up to create, you know, create sort of controversy among ethics professors. And in some ways, the episode ends up leaning that way as well, I would argue, since, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Michael, the um, the architect 
uh, is at this point participating in Chidi's ethics class, and uh, he creates a sort of hyper-realistic simulation of the trolley problem. It kind of becomes this like you know joke on uh, gory video games almost, where Chidi, instead of lecturing at a blackboard, has to actually pull or not pull the lever. Uh, and uh, and he's doing this to spite Chidi, right? Like right, he's not doing this to learn about ethics. It's he's torture. doing this to to torture Chidi some more because he's kind of, uh, you know, uh, backsliding to his uh, his own worst self. So I'd say that I'd say that you know the script of the episode ends up in my reading suggesting the trolley problem is not as illuminating as it says that it's a it's kind of more of a exercise in coarsening the moral imagination than sharpening it. Yeah, it seems like that is what the director is trying to, or the the show's creator is trying to get at, is that we we can go through all these possible scenarios and we're never really getting at the right answer. And the trolley problem is just kind of like the wrong framework for even asking these questions. It's it's almost like just dipping your toes into the water when there's there's so much more more at stake. Yeah, and later in the season, there's a sort of callback to the trolley problem when a character makes a like genuinely self-sacrificial choice, and they uh, make a comment like they've solved the, they've solved the trolley problem at last. Mm-hmm. And to me, that suggests that the you know the real solution to the problem is to break out of its constraints, right? You know, right. that like the truly, you know, the life of virtue is a life that ha- ends up having to reject the premise of kind of. You or me, sort of, yeah, and the and the sort of utilitarian, uh, the utilitarian right. ethos that the trolley problem kind of gets at, uh, that sort of that premise has to be rejected in order to pursue a life of uh, a life of virtue and a life that might include just you know, uh, making the taking the actions that the problem itself couldn't include, the self-sacrificial actions that genuinely, um, you know, uh, live out virtue in the world. Well, it's interesting. I wonder if. That is actually what the show's creators, uh, I'm not sure if it's pronounced sure or sure, but Michael, Michael Shore, I think is the showrunner. showrunner. I wonder if that's the point yeah. that, that he wanted to get at, or if that's one of those, those Just kind of accidentally fell into it. Yeah. I wonder if it's one of those instances, which I think are numerous in which you see, you know, the, the truth of virtue ethics coming through in, uh, in a scenario where someone doesn't necessarily intend for that to be portrayed. So I think, Another yeah, another way to read I think the it's a really good question. Yeah, and I think another way to read the trolley problem episode is the trolley problem is a well known ethical hypothetical for a number of reasons, and it's because there are no easy answers. And I think you can watch the trolley problem episode and come away thinking, "Wow, there is no single right answer." But it's really helpful to have an exercise like this to just think through the many facets of a question and really sort of get to the heart of what you think about a certain issue. And yeah, so we never get to the heart of it. Yeah. And so you, you basically come away thinking like there is no right answer. And the real right answer is to, um, in a sense, I guess, reject the, the paradigm of the trolley right, problem. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Michael sure is such an interesting figure. I, you know, I've read some interviews with him and I'm talking about the genesis of this show. And he, it seems like a lot of his, his interest in these questions, right? His interest in making a show that, that turns on questions of ethics just stem from uh, him like thinking hard about, about his own life. He, he tells a story about a time when, uh, you know, like a fender bender occurred. Uh, he, uh, he, you know, he wanted the, um, the other party to, uh, to, to lay off him a little. He's like, it's just a scratch here. You know, I'll, I'll make a big donation to, uh, to charity. Right. You know, he was, he was kind of trying to, trying to shame the other person by saying, you know, if you don't, if you don't like 
uh, take me to court here. I'll just uh, donate, donate to, to the charity. Hurricane <laughs> Katrina Relief Fund, right? And then and then he like started thinking like, wait, if I'm using a charitable donation as a way to spite someone, is that ethical? <laughs> and he kept thinking about it and called up ethics professors to get their take on it. So, you know, to me, to me, this like has all the marks of a guy who's like who's really like thinking through this and trying to trying to find his his way to what it means to be a good person and then decided to make a whole show where that's the that's the central thrust and the central arc. So, you know, I'm I'm fascinated to see how it how it has developed so far and how it will develop because I've seen three seasons and I'm waiting for season four. Yeah. So we've kind of talked about what the creator is trying to um, what he's doing well in in the creation of the show and in the execution of his his idea. But what can we say about what he's done wrong? Like what, where, what is the show kind of not accurately portrayed? You know, it's poked fun at our ideas of heaven and it's shown how the trolley problem is just kind of flawed at the root, but what has it not gotten right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's two things that have been a little dissatisfying to me as the good place has gone on. Um, and kind of ones, ones maybe more like inherent to the, uh, just the sitcom genre and one's one's a, a different of a different order. So I'll start with that first one. The um, the ensemble cast on the show is great, right? People are putting in really wonderful work. You know, both uh, Kristen Bell as Eleanor, William Jackson Harper as Chidi, and then the other central characters are uh, Manny Jacinto playing Jason and Jamila Jamil playing Tahani, as well as uh, Darcy Carden as Janet, who's a sort of Siri-like all-purpose assistant that uh, lives in the good place and you know appears to answer questions and give guidance. Um, She's way better than Siri, so, though, Alexi. <laughs> my Siri never understands anything I say. <laughs> and then, of course, Ted Danson. Right, right. Ted, Ted Danson as the as Michael himself, the uh, the the architect of of the good place. Uh, these characters are really you know well developed. They they get a bunch of um, a bunch of screen time, and the relationships between them are are uh, are well drawn but it does mean that the way the f- the way the show focuses on them and and kind of the way that their relationships are the lens through which um kind of ethics are 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 viewed means that this ethical framework is still like fairly individualistic right it's it's an ethical framework that's all about learning to care for um friends and loved ones right it it, it kind of um we kind of don't get to quite larger questions of altruism or the way that society should be arranged just because the show is so focused on this small tight ensemble in its exploration of ethics, which is, which is like a fine choice, right? You can, you can learn a lot about ethics in a small group like that, but I do think that it means like there's a sort of limit you have to acknowledge as well to how much you can learn about ethics when you're dealing with, you know, five or six people, right. And their interrelationships. Um, and then the other the other thing that's the sort of you know ongoing tension I'd say in uh, my own enjoyment of the show and I think like the show's own like handling of its themes potentially is that the the heavenly bureaucracy as it's been unveiled in the show is still pretty farcical right you oh, know, yeah. like, everything we learn about the way that souls are judged, the way the sort of afterlife is structured, it's still, it's still on the level of, you know, kind of wacky, wacky hijinks, right? We don't, we don't see any figures where we're like, yes, that is a, that is a figure of wisdom, right? Or that, that is a character that, you know, I feel is like very trustworthy here. You know, even when um, the judge appears, uh, you know, she's a, she's a pretty, 
you know, uh, pretty farcical uh, uh, portrait. And this means, right, that um, the sort of incompetent heavenly bureaucracy suggests that morality is very extrinsic to the world, right? If there if there isn't, you know, to put a to put a name to it, God, right? If there isn't a um, a divine creator uh, or uh, or a a being of love and wisdom that undergirds morality, then that suggests morality isn't something intrinsic woven into the fabric of the universe itself, right? If kind of, if you go up to the top and all you find is like more weird, like corporate squabbling, uh, then morality is, is well constructed, right? And so I think for a show that, that cares so much about morality, it's weird for it not to kind of give it the credit of being a sort of part of the universe itself. Uh, but anyway, those are those are like relatively deep thoughts to have about a sitcom. So I like chalk it up to the Good Place's credit that it like provokes these at all. Uh, but yeah, I still think that's that's a place where I have you know have some disagreement with the way the show portrays its own universe. No, I think those are good points, and I think on your second point that I think he's kind of gone too far in poking fun. I mean, he's been poking holes in our ideas of philosophy and the afterlife, but then almost going to the point of making fun of the idea of an afterlife at all or the the gravity of the question of whether or not I'm going to go to heaven or hell. I mean, hell is is kind of a joke place as well. I mean, once we get to hell and we see where the demons are and we see the way them, they're all interacting, it's it's very humorous. That's probably just... The fact that it's a sitcom and so it's supposed to continue to be comedic and not to get too dire, but it seems like he's just kind of gone a little bit too far in poking fun that nothing is off limits. Nothing is sacred or really serious. So I actually think I have a dissenting view on both of these points, though. On the okay. on the second let me hear. On, yeah, on the second one about the sort of farcical heavenly beings. Now, I, I haven't seen season three, so season three could sort of disprove my hypothesis here, but I wonder if the the logic that you are um, that you are disappointed does not seem to apply to heavenly beings, right? So if I take your point, Alexi, it's that the universe is undergirded by the moral laws of its author, and the fact that we don't see those moral laws applying to the heavenly beings means that those moral laws are not consistent or comprehensive across the cosmos. Is that essentially it? Yeah, that's certainly the way the the way the show seems to to portray these things. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But, but I wonder if there's a way to interpret this, um, in, in such a way that the, the beings, the, the supernatural beings that we see so far, that's basically the demons in hell, the head demon, uh, Sean, right? I think it's Sean. Um, and then the judge, right? The judge is not, the judge is not God in this equation. The judge is really more like the equivalent of a, of like a, an attorney who's running a binding arbitration, right? She just like the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the difficult cases go to her and she decides if they go to heaven or hell, but we haven't actually been exposed to the good supernatural beings, God, his angels, etc. And maybe if we were, those laws would, would be more clearly applying to them. I sort of doubt it because it's an NBC sitcom, but I wonder if there is a sort of logic in the reality that the, the beings that are in rebellion against God don't subscribe to the moral laws that God has authored, if that makes sense. And, and on this point, I think of um, Benedict XVI, who has talked about the devil as an unperson, and it's because he has no capacity for relationship. And obviously the devil rebels mm. because he rejects God's law and 
and, and he wants to be God and that he can make the, make the laws for himself, right? So he, he lives and he exists in opposition to them. And what better way to be in opposition to law than to be an emblem of complete chaos and arbitrariness? Fair. I mean, these these are pretty profound points. I think you're, I think you're not you're not crazy here. I think there's some aspects of later seasons of The Good Place that um, that cut against your more optimistic okay. uh, reading. <laughs> okay, here. I guess I, I'll just have to uh, yeah, I'll just have to watch season three then and, and watch my hypothesis. You have to keep watching. There, yeah. there are there are really good things to look forward to though. Um, you know, every season this show ends on some kind of a some kind of a twist where I'm like, what are they going to do next? Yeah, right? we haven't Given had the that, same reactions. Even though the first season ended with the characters realizing they were in hell, you wondered where they're going to go from here. Totally. Right. The answer right. is kind of nowhere but up, right? <laughs> uh, I, I, I think the third season really kind of delivered uh, in amazing ways. The third season is is like super weird, uh, as you might guess from the way season two ends. Yeah. The third season goes to some strange, strange places. Uh, but along the way, there's a pretty, there's an episode that, to me, reads as a brilliant takedown of kind of Peter Singer-style Singer utilitarianism. Wow. All right. Uh, so do you have that to look forward to? Sounds great. Well, I'm, I'm all in favor of takedowns of Peter Singer-style <laughs> utilitarianism. <laughs> he's at Princeton, right, now? Uh, he's, like, right down the street from you, probably, Alexi. Oh, is that the case? I, I always forget where he is. I well, thought, I thought it was at Princeton. At least at some point. Yeah, I don't at, know at if he still is. At some point he was in Princeton. <laughs> Maybe not anymore. But okay, that's great. Um, how about, so you talked about season three briefly. Season four, I just read today that season four is going to be the final season of this show. So what are you looking for in season four, Alexi? Yeah, I really want I really want them to land this thing, you know, and kind of my statement at the very beginning that um, it seems like the show is is groping towards some concept of purgatory right of of you know kind of essentially what would it be like if uh, moral cleansing could happen in the afterlife that's where i sort of hope season four lands us uh and i and i um am you know optimistic that they have some kind of an ending in mind, you know, since they said, yeah, this is, you know, four seasons was, was the plan and we're going to stick with it. I'm glad they're not planning to renew it indefinitely just because this show has a story that has some clear momentum, right. And has kind of thematic stakes. And I think they'd be, well, they'd be lost if it just went on indefinitely. Cause I guess the, the big thing about, you know, the afterlife, both in, uh, you know, a Catholic conception and in, uh, the good places, slightly weirder cosmology, uh, is that it does ultimately come down to, uh, a choice, right? You know, there might be, uh, there might be a medium place as the show posits, but there's primarily, you know, good place and bad place and, um, a sense that you're headed in one direction or another, you know, throughout your life. Uh, and so it seems like, just like bringing the show to a conclusion and, and bringing a kind of satisfying end to these characters arcs is the, the thing I most want out of season four. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it can, it can deliver uh, since it's really made us care right about Eleanor's kind of slow progress from being just a very bad person to being a person who's trying to be good and, you know, sometimes succeeding and sometimes failing. Uh, so I'd love to see, you know, I'd love to see Kristen Bell bring that character arc home and uh, let us see an, an Eleanor who's really prepared for the good place by the end of this show. 
yeah, I think you're right that this show more than any other sitcom where they could continue on indefinitely needs some sort of appropriate like finality to it just because of the content. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Is there any, is there any conclusion that you guys would be happy with that was different from everyone ending up, ending up in the real good place? Ooh. Um, yeah, I think I'd be happy with an ending where they're still on their way. You know, there's been a really cool arc watching these characters develop, but indeed they were pretty bad people. Some of them, you know, selfish and never giving a thought to other people's needs. Uh, so uh, they might still have work to do right at the end of this show. Uh, and I'd be satisfied if the show ended with that kind of process begun and a sense of where it's going, uh, but not kind of jumping all the way forward to the conclusion, right? Giving us a sense that um, the work will continue, right? The the process of uh, becoming a whole person, becoming a, a holy person is, you know, lifelong and possibly longer than a human lifelong. What as a Catholic, I, I, I pray for departed souls in purgatory for is that, you know, whatever, whatever they are experiencing now is uh, meant for their sanctification, right? Meant to be part of becoming a holy person, becoming a whole person and, you know, being on that sort of upwards trajectory, right? Where your, uh, your experience is the, um, you know, the, the purging fire of love that draws you to the love that moves the sun and other stars. Yeah, that makes sense. I, um, I, That's I, right. I think so I would find some Dante. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I think I would be satisfied <laughs> with the conclusion that allowed characters to make make the choice and to kind of self-assess uh, no no not even self-assess and decide if they're worthy because who you know who of us is ever worthy right but to decide to follow god or not because ultimately that's i think you know just i think of like c.s lewis and the great divorce right these people are who are in hell and um yeah you know god would god would take them if if he, if they if they would take him but they won't right and it's it's all a choice, but but the problem is that I'm not sure if this sitcom can achieve the gravity of that choice, right. given the <laughs> given the sort of paradigmatic sure. stakes that it's already established. So, yeah, that's fair. Though I think I think basically, if anyone's a fan of The Good Place and hasn't read The Great Divorce, they really should, because uh, C.S. Lewis is a pretty brilliant writer, and even though in in The Great Divorce he's dealing with very serious themes, he includes a lot of humor too, right? Like, so if you're like, I want to see another, you know, another smart thinker kind of going through questions of heaven, hell, you know, human choice and the afterlife. Uh, you could do worse than taking a read of, of The Great Divorce because that's uh, that's one of Lewis's, you know, best kind of non-Narnia works of fiction. Uh, and he really is kind of applying a, a witty and insightful gaze to uh, what we often call the four last things, death, judgment, heaven and hell. Yeah, agreed. We will second that recommendation. And Alexi, we're out of time, but thank you so much for coming on to sit down with us for a few minutes and talk about The Good Place. Uh, to our listeners, as I mentioned, Netflix called us up and asked us when we're releasing this. We said Tuesday, the 27th. They said, okay, we'll release The Good Place Season 3 <laughs> on tw the 27th. So if you're listening to this you and you are in the U.S. or Canada and you're a Netflix subscriber, you can go on Netflix and watch The Good Place Season 3 or just binge the entire three seasons if you haven't watched any of it but Alexi thank you once again for joining us give our best to your wife and best of luck to you both as you begin your new jobs in Princeton working with Catholic students there absolutely thanks so much for having me this has been a lot of fun
Somebody